0: Scripture reading is from Matthew chapter five, verse five, and then some other assorted verses. (laughs) Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I am one of the pastors here. And if you are new with us this morning, uh, we are slowly working through the Sermon on the Mount, thinking through both these blesseds, the Beatitudes, and some of Jesus' instructions that connect to them in that first chapter. And it's... um, uh, an uncomfortable sermon Jesus is pushing us and he's driving us into righteousness which is where blessing and beauty is to be found and so as we continue to try to hear what Jesus has to say to us I invite you please to join with me in praying for God's help let's pray together Father you are you are such a good God you have loved us so deeply and so far beyond anything that we can comprehend And we thank you that even now, as we gather together in your name, we are standing and sitting in your grace, that you smile upon us. And we thank you that we know now as we are looking at your word, that even here you are giving, uh, that you are giving us the truth that we need to hear. And so we do ask that your spirit would help us to listen well Would you please work powerfully in us to remake us, to renew us, that we more and more would be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, Jesus is inviting us to think through and consider peace. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now that word peace is such an important word in the Bible. You've probably heard me say this before if you've been here for a while. Peace in the Bible is a bigger concept than the way we think of peace. We generally think of peace as just not fighting. But in the Bible, peace, especially in that Old Testament idea of shalom, peace is about connectedness. It's about harmony. Uh, one theologian described peace as the webbing together of God, humanity, and creation in justice and fulfillment and delight. And I think that's a great picture, this weaving, this webbing, tying together of all things in harmony and connectedness. That's what peace is. I realize it still might be abstract, so I, I tried to think through of what would be an example of this shalom Peace, and I thought of It's a Wonderful Life. Hopefully most of you have seen this classic movie. If you've not, you should rent it this week. It's, it's that good. But really, although I don't think the person making it realized it, it is a movie about shalom. It's a movie about peace. If you've seen it, you know that George Bailey is the hero and he essentially gives his life to a buildings and loan so that people can have affordable housing and can own their own businesses. And at a certain point in his life when he's in deep debt, he is frustrated and he kind of wonders what his life has even been for. And so this angel comes and gives him this idea, uh, the ability to see what his life would have been like if he had never lived. And so as he goes into this new reality, everything is different. No longer is it Bedford Falls, it is Pottersville. Pottersville. And because he wasn't involved helping people to own their businesses or own their homes, everything is not right. There is now poverty and crime where there was once community. Instead of Martini's Tavern, you've got Nick's Bar, which is this dive bar. Instead of the Emporium Department Store, you have a bunch of nightclubs. And what he sees, although this language is never used, is that his entire life has been devoted to weaving shalom. As he has been giving himself, as he's been allowing people to own things in the community, the community has been knit together, woven together in peace. And this is expressed kind of in a climactic way at the very end, as everyone from the community comes together and gives to take care of his debt, and they join together in song. That's, that's the picture of this biblical conception of shalom, where where humanity is webbed together in in righteousness and delight, woven together with God, woven together with creation. And that's the kind of peace that Jesus is talking about here when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And what I think Jesus has to teach us this morning in these verses that we've looked at are, are two primary things. First, that peace really matters to God. And secondly, that because this peace really matters to God, this peace should really matter to us as well. So first, peace really matters to God. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And now that idea of sons of God is is focusing on resemblance. Perhaps sometimes you've heard someone say, oh, that one's a chip off the old block. And you know by that that they mean that this person, this son or daughter, resembles their parents in some way. And and that's the way this expression is used. When someone is called a son of someone in in that culture, it's saying that person looks like that. Jesus is saying if you are a peacemaker, if you pursue peace, then when people look at you, they'll say, man, that person resembles God. And the reason for this is simple, because God himself is a peacemaker. God himself is passionate about peace. In fact, in some ways, that's even an understatement because peace is not just one thing in this checklist of God's priorities. Peace is at the very heart of who God is. God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So from all eternity, there is this webbing of relationship between the three of perfect knowledge of each other, perfect delight, perfect love, there is a harmony and connectedness that is fundamentally at the heart of who God is. And so when God made this world, he made this world with a peace that reflects him. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, uh, likens God's words where by his word he spoke and created the world. He he likens to this creation as kind of like this song. This song that God sings by by whose beauty this world springs into being. And if we just use that image of this creative song of God for a moment, then what we should imagine is as the world springs into being, it sings back. The ocean and the mountains resound in joy. The giraffes, the dolphins, they somehow also sing in praise. And then when humanity is made, it sings. All of creation sings together, delighting in the goodness of the God who has loved it. It's shalom. God is a loving creator and the creatures praise him. Humanity, we are given this role to oversee creation and take care of it and it gives us its beauty and its fruits to enjoy. Humanity was made in connection with each other, Adam and Eve, in perfect delight, perfect trust, perfect love. The world was beautiful. It was beautifully peaceful. When God says, this is good... He's commenting on how its peace reflects him. Because shalom, peace, matters to God. And when humanity sinned, we broke that peace between us and God, between us and the world, between each other. And that rupture of peace mattered to God. So when he rescues Israel and he brings them out of Egypt and he gives them laws, so many of the laws deal with neighbor relationships, with with how the rich should take care of the poor, with with just economic practices, with with sexual morality. And all of these are not just God desiring to have a bunch of rules because he's a rulemaker. It's it's God inviting his people into right relationships with each other, seeking to reweave, to web together humanity because peace matters to him. Many centuries later, when the prophets come to confront Israel for their failure, one of the key things they focus on is the lack of peace. There's this one place in the book of Isaiah where God's people are confused. They say, we are worshiping you, we're fasting, but God, it doesn't seem like you respond. And God says, let me tell you, because when you're fasting, at the same time, the people are not getting good wages. You are fighting against each other. Let me tell you what fasting that delights me is. It would be fasting where you give food to the poor, where you seek justice, where you seek peace with each other, because peace matters to God. Racism matters to God. It matters to God that there are some people who do not feel safe from their police who are supposed to protect them. It matters to God that we are in a nation right now where both sides of the political spectrum just seem to be hurling bombs at each other and just attacking each other. It matters to God that that families are being torn apart by conflict and adultery and abuse because peace matters to God. It matters to God so deeply that he gives everything to bring about peace. I mean, Jesus, the son that he gave came as the prince of peace. When he gave his life, he gave it to bring peace. We now have our sins dealt with so that we can once again have peace with God. And as we are brought to peace with him, we are changed so that we learn to have peace with each other. And that is not an accident. That is the goal In Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul steps back and says, let me tell you what God's big plan is, what his will for the universe is, here's how he summarizes it. He does all things to unite everything in Christ. Everything that God has done, Abraham, Egypt, the sending of Jesus, the church, everything has been to bring shalom, to bring peace, Because peace is who God is. And so peace deeply matters to God. And because it matters to God, that means it needs to matter to you and to me, we who call ourselves children of God. When Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God, he's telling us that if you are a child of God, then you must be a peacemaker. And that's exactly where Jesus takes us in those following verses that we have in our bulletin. In verses 21 to 26, he pushes us towards making peace. First of all, Jesus is saying that the peace that God loves is not just an external peace, but a peace that is from the heart. He says in verse 21, you have heard it said. Now, by now you might notice, Jesus is doing that a lot. You've heard it said, but I say to you, each time Jesus sees a place where people have drawn these lines and made these rules where they can say, this is all I need to do and nothing more. And every time Jesus pushes us way beyond that, says no, righteousness is so much bigger. And that's what he's doing here. He says, you have heard it said do not murder. And of course, that's from the Ten Commandments. But then he goes on, and anyone who murders is subject to judgment. And here's where that limiting, that that line drawing is found. Essentially, what people are saying is the only thing I am accountable for doing is not hurting the other person, not, not killing them, or at least not harming them. If you think about it, that's pretty much our standard today. Our standard of tolerance is this. It's saying, I should not hurt you, and I certainly should not keep you from being free or from being true to yourself, but I have no obligation to you. I don't have any responsibility to respect you or to care for you. As long as I do not hurt you, I'm good. That, that's our culture of tolerance, isn't it? But Jesus says, no, that's not good. Because that's not what peace is. A a webbing together, a connectedness, a harmony that is true peace goes much deeper than this. True peace needs to come from the heart. We're not just accountable for our actions, Jesus says. We are accountable for our attitudes. It's not just enough to choose not to hurt the other person. To be a peacemaker is to pursue a peace that goes deeper deeper and so Jesus says everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment that's a confusing statement at first because we know Jesus himself gets angry when he was at the temple overturning the tables he was expressing anger but as always what we need to do is look at the context to understand the kind of anger Jesus is speaking about he says right after, whoever insults his brother, literally anyone who calls his brother an airhead, will be liable to the council. And Jesus says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. Now, we shouldn't think that Jesus is talking about three different situations. You know, if you are angry, that's a little bit of a deal. If you say airhead, bigger deal. If you say you fool, that's hell. That's, that's not what Jesus is doing here. He's actually speaking of the same thing from three different angles and what he's describing if you if you put it together is an anger that leads us to have disdain for the other person to think lesser of the other person he's speaking of an anger that results in contempt and what is contempt you know sometimes when we are in conflict we can become really frustrated with someone and to start really noticing some character flaw on their part. Now, that's not, that's not contempt. That's just some of the things that happen in conflict. Contempt is when our botheredness goes so deep that we begin to think of the other person as less than ourselves. As someone who is no longer worthy of our respect. No longer worthy of us listening to them and considering them. At its heart, contempt is a refusal to recognize that the person we are dealing with is an equal. A person who is, like us, made in God's image. And therefore, for that reason, demanding our honor and even our love. Contempt, in essence, is to dehumanize the other person in our heart. To say they are not one of us. And when we show contempt, that is akin to murdering them within our hearts, by by taking their face, their humanity, away. Now, some of you might have heard of a man by the name of John Gottman. He's a psychologist who focused his research on what things cause a marriage to either be sustainable or a marriage to fall apart. What he would do is he would kind of trace the story of marriages for many years and seeing what were some of the common threads for those that weren't able to hold together and there is one thing that he saw more than anything else that was the key determining factor of whether or not a marriage would stay together and do you want to know what that is? It was contempt. There are a lot of ways that marriages can struggle but if contempt enters a marriage, that is what puts it in its most vulnerable position and its likeliest place of falling apart. Now, why is that? Because contempt makes conflict impossible to resolve. Think of how conflict is resolved. When we resolve conflict, it involves us listening to the other person. It involves a willingness to try to step into the other person's way of seeing things so that we can feel compassion and understand and therefore also then see ourselves in a different light and realize where we need to change, where we need to apologize. Now if the person that we're dealing with we don't even think is an equal, we think is below us, we will never do that. We will never open ourselves up to change. And so we will never resolve the conflict we have with another person. Contempt is anti-shalom. It is the thing that stands in the very way of peace. Contempt is what is at the heart of many divorces. It's also, of course, the foundational sin for racism, to, to see other ethnicities as somehow below us. A contempt is the reason for so much of the useless political conflict that's taking place. Whether you see some people as, as mindless, socialist, secular liberals, or you see some people as heartless conservatives that have no love for other people, either way, you are ultimately saying in your heart, you fool of the other person. And as long as that happens, there is no ability to listen and to learn and to try to pursue peace. Now, notice, though, when Jesus speaks specifically about this contempt, he's talking about one particular kind of relationship. He says, when you have contempt against your brother. And by brother, he's speaking here of those who are in the people of God with you. We could say fellow church members. Because if there's any place that peace should be experienced, it's amongst God's people, his children. And so he's saying, you, you must not have contempt for each other. Sometimes older Christians can feel like the younger Christians are, are immature and unserious, while the younger Christians can think older Christians are kind of out of touch and overly traditional. But in both cases, they are now keeping themselves from learning and growing together. Or sometimes maybe there is a situation where, where you have found yourself just so struggling with someone that the easiest thing is just to keep them at arm's length and, and you find yourself just kind of looking down on them. Jesus calls us away from that. Look, we're not expected to be deep friends with everyone here in this church. That's unrealistic. I mean, we're a family. Some people in this church are going to be more like your brothers and sisters, and some will be more like the second cousins twice removed. But we are called to be at peace, to be in harmony with each other, to be committed to connectedness, which means we are committed to uprooting all contempt. Listen, if you know of someone in this congregation that, for whatever reason, maybe They have hurt you in some way. Or maybe there is something that is just a glaring flaw. Insensitive. Incompetent. Corrupt. So that it's just caused you to dismiss them and to see them as less than yourself. You need to see the danger in that. I invite you to be praying about that and praying for that person that you're feeling contempt towards because we are called to be peacemakers as children of a God who loves peace. Jesus pushes us even further than this. He doesn't just talk about how our hearts should be pursuing peace. He calls us proactively to seek peace with others. He says, if there is a situation where you realize that you have wronged someone, it is your responsibility with urgency to seek reconciliation now just quickly as a clarification i want to point out that jesus is not saying that in every time that you're experiencing conflict that's your fault and you need to find a way to resolve it sometimes conflict is because someone continues to wrong you repeatedly and even as you're seeking to deal with it righteously, lovingly confronting and seeking reconciliation, they will not change. You are not called to just pretend everything is okay. That's, that's not true peace. That's not true harmony or connectedness. There are sometimes that peace isn't possible. That's why Paul in Romans says, be at peace with others as far as it is in your own power, which of course implies sometimes peace with others isn't in your own power. But Jesus is addressing a time where it is in our power, where we are the ones at fault, and therefore where we are called to make things right. And he gives a very specific example of this. Say he says you are a good Jew in his time and you in devotion to God have decided you want to offer God a gift. This would be the custom of the time. You, you go to the temple. You buy an expensive sheep. You have it slaughtered. But as it's being slaughtered, somehow it comes to your mind that you realize that you have hurt someone else. And that right now things are not okay between you and them. He says, here's what you need to do. You need to just drop the sheep right there. Just leave it. It's not going anywhere. And you need to go to that other person that you have wronged and make things right. Because while that offering is pleasing to God, it does not compare in terms of God's priorities to you being at peace with a brother or sister in Christ. And do you hear that? Some of you are fantastically faithful in coming to church and are generous in giving and have maintained steady times of prayer and Bible reading on your own. But let me tell you this, if you are still at odds with some other believer, then you have missed what God's priorities are for you. Because peace matters to God. Jesus gives a second illustration, this time from the court of law, verse 25. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. And his point here is there is an urgency to unresolved conflict. Sometimes when we experience conflict, in fact, oftentimes, the simplest and easiest thing to do for us is just to try to pretend that it's not there. To just hope that if we never address it, it will just kind of go away on its own. Jesus says, if you do that, that's like knowing you have a lawsuit against you and just ignoring it and hoping it goes away. That's not the right way of dealing with it. You need to deal with it urgently. Because the reality is, conflict is like a ticking time bomb. Anger... Becomes bitterness, which becomes hatred. So many broken relationships could have been resolved, could have been dealt with if they were only dealt with sooner. Jesus is saying if you know of conflict, if you know that you've wronged someone, don't assume that maybe next month you can deal with it. Or next year, if you wait long enough and things don't get better, this week, today, Deal with it urgently, because that's what you need to be about if you are pursuing peace. You need to know how to go and apologize to someone, as painful as that might be. And let me say, truly apologize. There is a danger sometimes when we apologize that it's almost a power move, where if we say it, we think that's going to take care of things, we don't have to worry about it anymore, but that's not what good, godly apologies are. That's not what actually pursuing peace looks like. Some of you have read Ken Sandy's book, Peacemaker, which is a fantastic book about this very subject. And he outlines a few really important principles about what true apologies look like. He says, you know, a real apology admits specifically how we have wronged the other person. It's so easy when we are trying to apologize to say an if. You know, I'm sorry if I hurt you or maybe I did this or I did this but. Get rid of the if, maybes and buts and just name it in it's ugliness. I realized that I said I was going to do this and then I went back on my word. I broke your trust because I was selfish and I'm sorry. Secondly, along with admitting specifically we need to acknowledge the other person's hurt because when we do something wrong it's not just breaking rules it's hurting someone and we need to give space to recognize how we have hurt sometimes the best thing to do is just to acknowledge that and ask you know i realize i have hurt you if you want to talk about it i am ready to listen Third, a a true apology accepts the consequences. Remember when I was a kid, sometimes I'd say, now I've said sorry, you have to forgive me. And I don't think that's the only time anyone has said that. I think sometimes even as adults, I've said sorry, I shouldn't have to pay for it anymore. But that's a power move. That's us trying to apologize so that we can get power back. But true apologies is relinquishing power. I have wronged you, and I realize it's not gonna be easy For you to forgive me and it might be that our relationship is never the same and I accept that that's one of the consequences of what I have done and finally a real apology not only admits specifically and acknowledges the hurt and accepts the consequences but it also alters our behavior because if we are truly sorry then we're not going to repeat it we're going to try to change Real apologizing, real peacemaking is hard work. But it's work that we are called to do. Because peace is beautiful. Peace is who God is. And if we are his children, peace is what we will be about. Let me ask, as you consider who God is as the one who is himself peace and loves peace, what reaction does that cause within you? Do you feel kind of a a sense of guilt as you realize how you have fallen short of that? Well, that's appropriate. Do you feel kind of a a, a compulsion of, "I, I need to work on this, I want to grow and I want to change? That's also always appropriate. But I hope you also feel encouraged Because God is the chief peacemaker. He has made peace with us, something that seemed impossible, knowing how much we were against him. But he gave everything. He brought us to himself through his son. And having brought peace with us, he is bringing peace through us. You are being renewed, whether you realize it or not, if you've placed your trust in Christ. And day in and day out, by his spirit, he is reworking your heart so that more and more you become his child. More and more you become one who makes peace. Martin Luther described this process of our growth in ways that I find incredibly encouraging. He says, This life as a Christian, therefore, is not righteousness, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing. Not being, but becoming. Not rest, but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing toward it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, but it is the road. Perhaps this morning right now you feel so deeply enmeshed in contempt for another person that it's hard for you to imagine yourself changing. Or perhaps there is a conflict that has gone on so long it's hard to ever imagine being able to apologize for. But you can change. You will change. You can apologize, not because that's just your own power, because you're just a person who's good at apologizing, but because you are in Christ. Because you are on the right road. And the first step as we hear these things that we should always be taking as we are hearing God to call us forward, the first step is to acknowledge our own sin and to ask God for help in it. So let me invite us to do that right now. I'm going to give us a moment just to think about where we might have fallen short. And then you'll see in your bulletin there's a time for a community confession of sin where there will be silent confession and also corporate confession. So after just a short while of thinking, I will lead us in this confession together. So would you please pray with me? Lord God, by the resurrection of your Son, you overcame the old order of sin and death to make all things new in Him. But we have grown impatient in waiting for you to bring all your promises to completion here on earth. In our impatience, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. In our anger and self centeredness, we are quick to stir up conflict. We judge our family co-workers and neighbors and dismiss them as fools rather than seeking to understand them and pursue their good. Forgive us, we pray. We confess that we are poor at pursuing reconciliation. Conflict often exposes our sin, but we focus on the sins of our neighbor and ignore our part in the conflict. Forgive us, we pray. Lord, help us to remember how Jesus loved us even while we were his enemies and how through his blood he brought about our peace. Amen. Brothers, hear the good news of the gospel. If anyone, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Friends, in Christ, your sins are forgiven and you are reconciled back to the Father. Thanks be to God.